Hi, everyone. I'm Kyle Bechet, and this is the AAF Exchange, a podcast from the American Action Forum, where experts provide clear, data-driven insights into today's economic and domestic policy issues. Welcome, and thank you for tuning in. Welcome back to this episode of the AAF Exchange. Uh, we're continuing our conversation on the impact, the economic impact and response of the COVID-19 pandemic. Um, back again is AAF's president, Douglas Tultz-Egan. As Doug is working in a largely empty building, there's a lot of construction going on, so please excuse any background noise in the podcast. Doug, thanks for taking your time and joining us today. I'm happy to be here. Thank you. How are you doing on this rainy uh, day in our nation's capital? Well, you know, we've got um, Old Testament uh, uh, rains, we've got pandemics, so, you know, frogs are next. Get ready. <laughs> I uh, Hopefully we won't see that, but we'll see. <laughs> Um, so let's talk about, you know, the big stories of the week. Um, the biggest, of course, being, you know, the first quarter uh, GDP numbers came out. Uh, break down for us what you see there. So the number is down 4.8% uh, in an annual rate, a little under 5%. But the really striking thing about it is that all of that damage occurred in probably the last two weeks of March. Right? January and February were essentially unaffected. Early March, there's no particular evidence of a fall off. But we saw the household sector essentially just come to a standstill. Um, uh, the big drop was in consumer spending, uh, a number that was down a little under 8%. And really strikingly, it wasn't big ticket items. It's not like people said, oh, I'm not going to buy a car. They stopped doing basic services. Some things you would expect, like uh, lodging services, going to hotels, stopped. Transportation services, airlines, stopped. Mm -hmm. But shockingly, the really big number that accounts for half of the decline is a stoppage in using of health services. People stopped going to the doctor, they stopped having elective procedures, and instead they just tucked that money in the bank. And so astonishing. It, it, it's truly an amazing thing to see. Um, this morning in a separate report, we saw the, um, the, the saving rate just skyrocket, right? Went, went up from eight to 13%. I mean, it's just, um, um, you know, people got scared and they stopped spending, they held on to their money. And, um, you know, it's just a striking tribute to uh, this moment in history. It's, it's shocking. Um, uh, as a footnote, um, residential construction rose 21% in the first quarter. Hmm. That's the strongest number that I've ever seen. And so it's a reminder, as a matter of economic history, that we came into this in pretty good shape. Yeah. And the only way for to get a recession is for to have the household sector go south. It went south in a very big way. In those two weeks, it pulled down uh, GDP growth to negatives, and that gives you a big hint as to what it's going to look like uh, in the second quarter because that behavior will continue, and it's going to be magnified by the fact that we now have income losses. We've yeah. had 30 million people in the past six weeks apply for unemployment insurance, and so you know the number for the second quarter, you know, it's, it's anyone's guess. Uh, mm -hmm. We've seen estimates anywhere from negative uh, 30% to negative 40% at an annual rate. And uh, all of those are entirely reasonable estimates. Mm -hmm. So you kind of started answering my my, my follow-up question, which was, um, will we see a worse number in quarter two? Um, where are we going to see, like, is there any other areas that we should be paying attention to on why we're going to see a worse quarter two? Um, is there any room for optimism with quarter two, or is it just already a loss? Um, it, it, it's certainly already a loss. We, we've seen so much unemployment. We, we know that means that um, they have shuttered a, a great many businesses, and you know wh when you just stop producing, the GDP numbers are, are going to be terrible. Um, the the only reason for optimism, 
uh, is that I don't think most of those estimates take into account the fact that we are starting to see some states reopen. And mm -hmm. over the next couple of weeks, 10 states will follow the lead of uh, Georgia and Alaska and, and open to commerce to some extent. Uh, a rough estimate is about 18% of the population lives in those states. Uh, there are another set of states um, scheduled to come online after May 1st and, and going forward, and there's another 18% there. So we've got more than a third of the, the population having the opportunity to go back to work, at least in part, and that may bring that, that second quarter number up somewhat. Mm -hmm. Interesting. Um, so GDP numbers, other than to you economists, are pretty abstract. Um, to most people, you know, this, oh, it's, it's, I know, I, I know, I was going to get into trouble with this question, but have to ask it. Um, what does it mean for the average American? You know, the non-economist. What, what, why should the average American worry about the size of the economy? Well, uh, you you cannot literally avoid this uh, moment, right? There, unless you are a streaming service or a delivery service, the the economy is a highly interconnected thing, and it's all getting pulled down. So. No one escapes uh, the pull of of a, a big fall like this, and you know it should concern you because of uh, holding on to your job. If you've got a job, um, you, you know the, the likelihood of getting a raise just went out the window. It's going to be tough the remainder of the year. Mm -hmm. So um, you've already started talking about it with you know the May first with a bunch of states reopening on May first. Um, as that starts to happen, what might an economic recovery look like? Um, the administration is saying that we're going to see a huge bounce back over the summer. Um, what do you see happening? Well, um, most forecasts uh, see a return to growth in the third quarter. So the Congressional Budget Office, uh, my old shop, uh, shows something like 5% growth in the third quarter. Um, moving from negative 40 to positive 5 is at some level an enormous recovery, right? That, that's a big change. But you're really the level of economic activity is still down 35 percent. So um, I think getting back to the level of economic activity we had January 1, 2020 is going to be a multi-year uh, enterprise. We're going to get back there uh, not this year, maybe even not next year. It, it's really going to take a long time. A lot of it will depend on on things we don't know, um, uh, in particular, the behavior of the virus over the summer and the fall. The degrees which it you know it, it sort of goes away or, or comes back for a second time that's important and then there's the ongoing public health uh efforts uh that will will dictate a lot i mean the lockdowns are the reason we had the the horrible uh jobs numbers we've had and, and we'll have a bad um gdp number uh having to repeat that would would sort of get in the way of a recovery for sure and they're really Three interconnected pieces, and I, I've been watching the public debate about this with, with a great deal of interest. Um, the the original goal, as it was described by by the public health experts, was we need to flatten the so-called curve, the, the rate at which uh, infections are uh, spreading through the population, so as to make sure our hospital systems and, and health sector in general doesn't get overwhelmed. But there was no talk about how people just wouldn't be getting sick. People would be getting sick. Mm -hmm. But it would be contained in a way that we could manage it, like a regular flu season. And uh, now the the bar seems to have been raised to, you know, we don't want people getting sick. So um, I'm not sure that's a realistic place for people to to be aiming. And if you aim that high, 
with given the technologies, you guarantee that not many people are going back to work and not much economic activities uh, going on. So that's something I've just noticed happening. Mm -hmm. Then there are the three important pieces that I think are interconnected, but which seem to get talked about separately. There's testing, and you hear a lot about got to have testing, we can't reopen. Got to have testing, we can't reopen. There's treatments like antivirals. We heard uh, recently about this uh, Gilead drug that seems to have some effectiveness in shortening the, the impact of the, the COVID-19 infection. And so, you know, the treatments, if you have a really good treatment, you no longer care about testing because if you get it, you just get treated and you're fine. Right. And, and the third piece is vaccine. The vaccine, of course, is, you know, what a lot of people think of as the ultimate solution to this, but 40% of Americans don't get vaccines. You know, the annual flu vaccine is a hit or miss proposition. Vaccines are by no means easy and, and 100% automatic. So I think you push forward all three fronts and the progress we make on that is going to dictate a lot how quickly we can genuinely restore full economic activity. Gotcha. So um, you, we talked a couple of weeks ago about this, but as these states reopen, do you see um, any issues with certain states reopening and other states not reopening with interstate commerce going on? Do you see any issues there? It, it, it's going to present genuine business logistical uh, issues. There's no question if you have a multi-state operation and you know the key supply point is in one state that's closed, the others may be open, but they won't be able to operate effectively. And so uh, I think of all of the, the problems uh, associated with that as a big sort of supply problem in the economy and su supply chain problems are, are very hard to deal with from a policy point of view. There's not much you can do. Um, having said that, you know, it makes sense that not everything is the same. There are places that are less densely populated, more densely populated, the ages are different, and it's probably realistic that some places will be able to open quickly and others it'll, it'll be a while. And it'll also depend on the mix of industries. I mean, uh, you know, we operate in a think tank. Um, we can literally do our work while physically dispersed and using um, broadband technologies. And we, we've been doing that. Um, if you're in a manufacturing plant, you have to get people back. And so the pace at which things uh, go back to normal really is going to depend also on the mix of industries in an area. Mm -hmm. One last follow up on what you were just talking about. Um, how much does the recovery depend on the efforts to mitigate the virus, not just the testing? I mean, you know, picking the sweet spot for reopening to ensure individuals and businesses act responsibly uh, to making sure uh, buildings are set up for distancing. How much of the recovery depends on all those measures? I, I think we know the answer from our experience in this moment. Lockdowns are economic tragedies and uh, avoiding the necessity of, of further lockdowns is important from the, the point of view of recovery. And that can come from behavioral um, uh, changes, so being careful about your social distancing and, and reasonable about how you lay out the physical facilities. And it can come from medical advances, you know, ability to treat the, the disease. Mm -hmm. um, so, all right, so let's switch topics um, to another headline story from this week. Um, it's been popping up in a couple of headlines in the dish. And then you wrote, you dished on it a few weeks ago and then dished on it um, some uh, this week. And Isabel Soto, AAF's uh, Director of Labor Policy, um, or, uh, came out with a paper um, looking at this issue um, where unemployment benefits that were put into the CARES Act um, sort of outweigh the benefit of going back to work and getting back onto the, you know, getting back on the payroll. What's the problem here? Uh, and second, you know, how concerned are you that Congress will actually keep, you know, extending these benefit levels? So the, the basic issue is that 
in, in the CARES Act, the big response to the, the pandemic, uh, Congress added to unemployment insurance an additional federal benefit of $600 per week uh, from now to July 31st. $600 a week is $15 an hour, and this gets added on top of the regular state uh, unemployment insurance benefit. And, and that means for many people, they're going to make a lot more money on unemployment insurance than they would have at their job. Now, if the economy had remained essentially on lockdown from now to, to you know, July 1st or, or something, I, I thought, well, this is unattractive, but not a big deal because no one's got a chance to go back to work anyway. Uh, and, and almost certainly no Congress would extend this. So those were the two thoughts I had at the beginning. We're now seeing some states open up and they're now going to have to get people to come back to jobs in order to have that open up, be successful. And this has now become a labor market issue in those states. I mean, and, and you have to find a way um, given the, the existence of the benefits to get people to come back to work. What, what Georgia did was say, okay, if you come back to work, you can keep getting that. We'll give you an extra 300 bucks. So they put a, basically an employment bonus into the system to get people back. Um, you know, it's going to take things like that. Over the long haul, it, the benefit's just too rich mm -hmm. for uh, genuine labor market recovery, especially the recovery of the people you want to get back most quickly. Those who have less experience, less skills, they're typically in less well-paying jobs. The more time they're off, the more likely you are to lose them entirely. You know, it wasn't that long ago that we were celebrating the fact that we kept creating hundreds of thousands of jobs every month by attracting into the economy people who hadn't been there for a long time, people with yeah. the weakest uh, attachment. We're now seeing that unravel, and we'd like not to lose that permanently. So I, I think this is going to be a big issue going forward. There's a strong push from, from the progressive wing to keep this benefit in place. It's, it's, you know, their hearts are big, but the logic's not great. And uh, you, you've got to have something that's that's more reasonable uh, if we want to get a recovery. That number that you just were talking about—that's the U6 number that you and you and uh, Gordon follow monthly during Jobs Report Day, correct? Um, we're trying to keep track of uh, not just the sort of typical unemployment, but all the other notions of underemployment. I, you know, I'm only working part time; I'd rather be full time. You know, th things like that. And okay. um, you know, there, there's a lot of workers affected by this, right? Mm -hmm. You know, this is something that affects 64 million workers uh, in Isabel's calculation. Uh, you know, that's a third of the labor force. That's enormous. Mm -hmm. yeah, I, would, I would imagine that, you know, keeping them off the the, pay, the uh, payroll would be a very bad idea, um, especially as these states come back online. Yeah, that, you know, a, a big piece of the philosophy behind the CARES Act is keep people on the payroll, keep them attached to their employer. That's what's behind the Paycheck Protection Program. That's what's behind the Fed lending facilities. The unemployment insurance benefit is an acknowledgement that so much damage had been done that you were going to have to go directly to those, those individuals. But you don't want that to be a, a durable solution. That, that's right. supposed to be band-aid. That's a short-term, not a long-term solution. Yeah. Um, on a little bit more of a stranger topic um, and something that you know, you've dished on this week and, uh, you know, I've seen stories about as a president invoking the Defense Protection Act to ensure that we, you know, we have enough meat. Um, what, first off, what is the Defense Protection Act? It's something that I, you know, other, until this pandemic, I hadn't even heard of. So so it's a 1950s era law, the Defense Protection Act, uh, um, enacted during the Korean War to give the president the power to essentially take over some some production decisions 
in order to further the military effort. Uh, it's since been reauthorized countless times, so they keep um, sort of updating it. Uh, basically, the president can um, uh, go to a manufacturer and say, look, we have, we have a contract, we need tanks. Um, put aside the orders you have for uh, you know, sedans and, and minivans, make tanks. So you give a priority in the production to what the government needs. Mm -hmm. uh, he can um, declare certain um, uh, pieces of supply to be critical and, and commandeer them for government use as opposed to something else. So we need things. And, and you know, in general, he has the ability to put these, these security issues first. What he actually did was declare protein to be a national security um, uh, issue. And so we must uh, find a way to maintain the supply of protein. Um, my mother's probably smiling, but I mean, you know, it, it's, uh, it's a remarkable moment. I learned something about the Defense Production Act. Uh, I, I thought the president just had the power to force people to produce. And these guys want to produce. The meat producers want to produce. Tyson's wants to produce chicken. And I thought, why are you going to use this? The problem is they can't produce, and you need to fix the problem there. One of the issues is liability. Uh, the manufacturers are worried if they run these meatpacking facilities, they're going to be liable for damages because people get sick on the job, and they're going to get sued. So uh, I thought, don't demand that they produce you know, steaks. Uh, give them some protection on the liability front. Th that's the key. Well, it turns out the Defense Production Act does that. There's a section of it that says if you're following one of these orders – you get liability protection. And so that's something that I didn't know, and that that is effectively what's going to solve this problem. Mm -hmm. um, another product that AF put out this week is the uh, COVID-19 regulation tracker. Dan Bosch and Dan Goldbeck did a great job of, you know, finding all those regulations out there that relate to the COVID-19 pandemic. What is the purpose of this product? Oh, as you know, but, but maybe not all the listeners know, we, we've been on a we have a regular tracking regulation at AAF called Reg Rodeo, and uh, it, it takes account of every regulation issued by the federal government, looks at the paperwork hours necessary to um, uh, complete that regulation, uh, comply with it, the, the cost it imposes on the private sector. This is a similar effort, but it's targeted on responses to the COVID-19 pandemic. And it allows us to take a look at where that regulatory action is taking place. So is it all in health or is it elsewhere? Well, it turns out it's the meatpacking and other places. Mm -hmm. um, it allows us to identify when the big um, activities were. So as this uh, um, uh, national tragedy progresses, where, when are the big responses? Are there key moments in this? And what kinds of responses are there? Are they deregulatory? Are they regulatory? You know, they, they can be either. Uh, we saw some big deregulation in the health sector to allow telehealth. We've seen some regulations in other areas. So, um, you know, I think it's meant to sort of inform people about the the part of the response to the pandemic that's not visible, like the CARES Act, but is going on all the time and is probably just as important. Mm -hmm. So, before I let you let you go, um, any any what, what's keeping you busy over the next couple of days? Anything on TV? Any sports reruns you're going to watch? Um, well, um, I've been uh, binge watching uh, Westworld, uh, which okay. I had never um, paid any attention to, and I uh, highly recommend. Well done, fantastic cast, great show. First season was 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 wonderful, um, and um, I will be on Meet the Press uh, uh, this coming Sunday, uh, discussing all the same things we've discussed in these podcasts um, to a slightly smaller audience, but but mm -hmm. still worth doing. Well, I look forward to waking up early on Sunday and uh, taking a watch as well. Well, I'm looking forward to it. Thank you.
Thanks for joining us today, Doug. I hope you enjoyed this conversation. Tune back in for our next episode, where our experts will provide clear, data-driven insights into today's economic and domestic issues. I'd also encourage you to check out any of the links in our show notes, and also follow us on social media to learn more about AAF. Don't forget to subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, or Google Play.